Acts chapter 9. Have you ever had a life-changing experience? Have you ever had something that really changed the trajectory of your whole life? You see, every single one of us knows someone or we ourselves have had a life-changing experience. And sadly, some of us, we have rough, difficult, life-changing experiences. We have something that happened when we were young that has absolutely defined us for the rest of what we think our rest of our lives. Something tragic, something devastating. may have been the loss of a loved one. may have been something that happened to us that we would rather forget. And it's, it's hurt us as we've been growing up. It's hurt us as we've reached adulthood. And some of us, we've had a life-changing experience that is actually rather positive. We met somebody that we fell in love with. We got married. We've raised a family. And we're excited to see what else God is going to do in our lives. You see, all of us have life-changing experiences. I remember the first day that I woke up looking over and seeing Luke as my firstborn. Couldn't forget that moment. It's like, I'm a father. Oh, my word. What am I going to do? I'm broke. I don't have much. Um, How am I going to raise this boy? And you know what? Those are the things that God sends our way to remind us of the things that matter. You see, every single one of us, we've had life-changing experiences, maybe more than one. And in each one of those life-changing experiences, what, what happens is we come out of that motivated Motivated to do something, right? When we have our first child, we're motivated, dads, right? To be the best father we can be. Only to be reminded we, we fail, right? As time goes on. When, when, when we have that life-changing experience when it comes to our, to our faith in Christ, we're like, Lord, I will reach everybody around me. And as time goes on, for some reason, that life-changing experience doesn't seem to have the same passion in our hearts, as it did back then. You see, as time goes on, many of us lose the ramifications of that life-changing experience. But what we see here in the text here in, in Acts chapter 9 is what we would consider, and many in, in church history would consider, the greatest conversion story in all history. The conversion of the Apostle Paul, or as he's referred to here in this text, Saul. So if your Bibles, we're going to be looking at four specific things when it comes to the life-changing experience. In Acts 9, 1 through 31. Verses 1 through 2, we're going to look at the opposition. Number 2, the encounter, verses 3 through 9. Number 3, the messenger, verses 10 through 18. And number 4, the change, verses 19 through 31. So let's look at number 1, the opposition, verses 1 through 2. Look at what it says. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul starts off in opposition to God, just like any of us. He starts off opposing the people of God. What's interesting is that his opposition to Jesus Christ is displayed in his opposition to his disciples or followers, if you will. 
In fact, maybe that's the reason why John later on tells us that we know we've passed from death to life if we have love for the brethren. See, Saul's opposition was actually a religious one. He thought he was actually doing God a favor by imprisoning and killing the followers of Messiah, being a Jewish Pharisee himself. Remember, after all, it was the Pharisees themselves that had the greatest dealings, if you will, in why Christ was crucified. He was taking away from their authority, if you will. And so Paul, being a religious man, decided, I'm going to take it upon myself to do something about this. Saul here, who's, and I'm sorry, I'm going to use them interchangeably, and we'll get to that later. So I'm sorry, I, I, by default, I go to Paul. Um, Saul wanted to make sure he would legally go after the disciples or followers of Jesus. In fact, he got legal authority and imprisoned those that followed Christ. His opposition was similar to those who would have opposed idolatry in Jewish history because Jesus' declaration of being God was blasphemy to a Pharisee. It was absolutely blasphemy. He had legal authority to pursue them outside the immediate jurisdiction that they were in. So what Saul did was, hey, I I can only pursue them to this point. I'm going to go get documentation to go ahead and make sure I have a warrant for their arrest even if they enter outside of Jerusalem territory. The problem for some of us is that we tend to forget that we were ever opposed to Christ, especially if we've been brought up in a Christian home. See, many of us, we know what to do, right? We, we need to ask for forgiveness, uh, we need to pray, confess sin, go to church, it's kind of like the basics, right? And we tend to forget that we were ever in opposition to God. You know, many of us that grew up in Christian homes, it's just a default, right? Like, I've always been in church. Like, what do you mean I'm an enemy of God? I've been friends since I was born. And, and sadly, what happens to many of us in that situation is we, we grow up used to being a part of the church without having the passion of a believer that comes to Christ later. You see, many, many of us have gone through the ritual, right? Go to church on Sunday, read your Bible, pray, repeat, right? It's just a redundant thing that we do. Others that came to faith later in life know more of what happens here with Paul. They know what it means to grow up in a dead religious home. Some of you that, are, that have come from a Catholic background, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you came from a certain, certain segment of Christianity where it was just ritualistic, and then you encountered the Lord, and things changed. Your whole perspective of Christ changed. They, those that have come to faith later, they know what it's like to have an empty ritual and feeling dead inside by doing that. The opposition to the disciples of Jesus is a telltale sign that one is in opposition to God. That's one of the reasons why when people opposed disciples of Christ, they were truly opposing Christ. We're going to get to that here in a moment. In fact, if you were to look closely at this text and look at, at what's going on in the world, you'll see that people will always use illegal means to get followers of Christ. They always will. I mean, I don't know why we're surprised by it. But we still, we passionately fight against it. We're like, this can't happen to us. Believer, let me just tell you, times have changed. People haven't. People are still the same. They're going to find a legal means to do things. And they'll have legal authority to do so. Those opposed to Christ will always find legal means to, to, to take those people on. In fact, the Supreme Court's no small debate, and we all understand that. I know most of you have probably heard the news of who uh, Trump has, has nominated for Supreme Court justice. But even with the checks and balances built into our republic, it's evident much of the court 
is always about which side is going to win for our case and our side, right? Like, which side is going to back us up? And that's really a lot of the debate. I can assure you, follower of Christ, disciple of Christ, that those things may change as far as people go and, and positions, but for the most part, people stay the same. We think that, we think that because this one person, we're going to get in there, they're going to change the landscape of our whole nation. That's not the case necessarily. There's a lot more at stake here. There's a lot more at stake that most of us realize. There's the souls of men and our children. That's more at stake. You see, people in opposition to Jesus Christ will go after his church. Like, don't be surprised by that. You better bank on it, believer. It's going to happen. And they will do so legally, right? It's legally coming after somebody. Your goal in explaining your position should be to steer them to Christ more so than to get people to just simply agree that you need to be able to exist. Saul, who's also called Paul, said later on, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So when it comes to voting, believer, let 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 me park here for a moment. Are you voting for the sake of the gospel? Does that even enter your mind? You realize we're, we're one of the last nations on earth that you can openly preach and not go to prison. True statement. All other places will claim they're free, and then all of a sudden there's arrest behind the scenes that you know nothing about. That's the way Russia operated for years. Oh yeah, we'll give you freedom, just register with the, with the government. That's why I have my opinions on shut down thing. I, I go back historically and I see what Russia did to churches and I'm wondering what's going to happen here in America if people just keep going. Sure, we'll do everything you would like. Before you know it, you can't preach the gospel anymore unless you word it this way. Just like Saul here though, we all must have that encounter with Christ. Let's look at the encounter. Number two. Verses three through nine. Look at what it says. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by, the way, by hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. You see, Saul's conversion story here is said to be the most famous conversion story in all of history. Saul's blinded by the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. In fact, we see later on, specifically in verse 17, that the Lord Jesus appeared. And then in another recap in verse 27, that he had seen the Lord on the road. So it wasn't just that he saw a bright light, it was the glory of Christ that was shining. Something interesting to note, Saul sees the same Jesus that Stephen saw as he was dying, standing before heaven. 
It's almost as if Jesus says, you are persecuting me by going after one of my children, one of my sheep. Parents, if we love our kids, we don't want anybody to do anything to them. You see, Christ cares for his sheep personally. He cares when others go after his sheep. You see, in Saul, in his going after the disciples of Jesus Christ, they really were going against Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling him specifically here. When we have someone go after our children, we take it personally, don't we? Why are you going after my son? Why are you going after my daughter? What do you think happens when Christ sees opposition to his children going on in the world? You think he just really care? He's a loving shepherd. He's going to defend his sheep. And that's what he does here by confronting Saul directly. He tells him, you're persecuting me, Saul. You're going after my disciples, but you're really persecuting me. Jesus is the good shepherd. His sheep are getting hurt. He's going to protect them. I want to pause for a moment and actually point something out. A lot of us, we tend to think that salvation will come by means of some ruler here on this earth many times. But how many of us take the the time to think through the fact that that ruler may be what Christ uses to protect us? Do you give Jesus the credit for the freedom that you have today and the leaders he's put over you that still allow you to do a lot of the things that other nations don't? You see, Jesus protects his own. And even even the nations that rage against Christians and rage against Christ... Jesus will take care of them. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. He will take care of his own. So why are you going after my disciples, Saul? To which Saul responds, who are you? I am Jesus, who you're persecuting. Jesus is telling him that in the end it's useless to fight him. Another translation will put, don't kick against the pricks. In another translation that you look up, it's literally, it's, it's pointless for you to come after them. It's useless. In other words, why are you fighting against me, Saul? Don't you know who I am? Saul responds with a simple, Lord, what do you want me to do? There's not a long theology lesson here. What do you want me to do? And Jesus instructs him to go to the city for further instruction. It'll be told to you what you need to do. What's interesting is that Saul has this encounter with Jesus, and there are people standing by speechless. They don't know what to think. What is this voice that we're hearing? It's very, it's very apparent that they have no clue what's going on with Saul and Jesus here. Maybe they couldn't understand what Jesus was even saying. Jesus is specifically dealing with Saul here and not those with him. This is the way Jesus calls his sheep personally, by name. Others may be present, but for some reason Jesus draws attention to one that's his own. It may seem strange because I know many of us have possibly gone through this scenario but never really thought through it. The same message you may hear that calls you to repent and turn to him seems like nothing more than just a worthless exercise to those around you. 
The same message that calls you to enjoy the blessings of Christ, the person sitting next to you may, may just respond with, I've heard that before. You see, for some, the word has an effectual working in their heart. And for others, it's nothing more than a rejection that they put up against. We don't know why Saul is blind for three days exactly here, but I'd like to extract a deeper meaning here in the text that many times we probably don't think about. One commentator made this statement. He says, He who had intended to enter Damascus like an avenging fury was led by the hand into that city, blind and helpless as a child. Saul comes with a vengeance against the disciples of Christ, and he leaves the city blind as a child, needing help. Gives you another meaning of childlike faith, right? I can't even help myself. I'm blind now. Saul was so bold about his passion to persecute the followers of Christ, but once he was with Christ and met him and encountered him, he was humbled as a child. That's one of the reasons why the gospel is so amazing. The most hardened criminal, when he encounters Christ, breaks down and is humbled. I want to clear some common misconceptions up when it comes to the conversion of Saul or Paul. You see, most of us have heard that Saul was before conversion and Paul is after conversion. How many of you have probably heard that? Probably many a times in Sunday school and church. Um, that God changed his name later on. Um, it sounds correct, but it does not hold up under the scrutiny of Scripture. So I'm just going to pause here for a moment. Once we go through this, I will hold you accountable if you're still proclaiming the other position. This is important that you get Scripture right. It doesn't matter if people have songs that say, once I was, you know, once I was Saul, now I'm Paul. It doesn't matter what the song says. Is that textually correct? If it's not, we need to make sure we're right. Okay? So here we go. Number one, he is addressed as Saul by Jesus in verse 4. Okay? Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay? We're not stopping there. Okay? I'm going to build an argument here. Number two, Ananias, after conversion, still addresses him as Saul. Look at verse 17. Okay? Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you, has sent me. Number three, he's still called Saul before the first missionary journey. In fact, go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And look at verse number 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now hold on a second, the Holy Spirit is God, right? What did he say? Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay, so if the Holy Spirit's still calling him Saul, then I don't think the name was changed to Paul. But anyways, we're not done yet. Now look down to verse 13. His name, number four, his name is changed over to Paul after he evangelizes outside of Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about where that change happens and why does it happen. Look at verse 13. Now when Paul and his par party set sail from Paphos, 
they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to where? Jerusalem. So here's what's going on. I'm, I'm building all this to get you to understand. It's very likely that Luke is the one that changes his name in the text here. Especially if you look at verse number 9. Look at verse number 9 in, in, in Acts chapter 13. Then Saul, whose name was replaced with Paul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, look intently at him. Also called Paul. Okay? So let's, let's, let's break this down even further. More than likely, it's Luke that gives the name change here in the book of Acts. Saul is derived from the first king of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, Saul, Paul, makes the statement that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is the Greek equivalent of that name, which is why he's also called that. Saul is not the sinner, and Paul is not the saint, okay? They're the same guy that was a sinner who's now a saint, all right? We clear? Now, in case you're like, man, you know, wait a second, I don't know if I agree with this still. I'm sure some of you still have that thought. There are two different names for the same man who's an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, let me prove to you that there's a similar situation that maybe some of you picked up on this last week in your Bible reading. If you've been reading, maybe you picked up on this slight hint. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, look at what it says when, when it talks about Barnabas, all right? And Joseph, otherwise Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement. So why are we not calling Barnabas Joseph then? You see, these men had Greek and Hebrew names. And you need to be able to understand that. It's very important that you don't just jump when someone says jump when it comes to a certain thing. Look, it preaches well, right? Like, it really preaches good to go, hey, Saul was before conversion, Paul is the new guy. Like, Saul was the saint, I mean the sinner, and I'm, I'm the sinner, and now God's given me a new name, so I'm Paul. Like, no, it, it preaches well, but it's not biblical. So, like, I'm sorry to destroy a lot of the Christian songs you've heard on this. I really am. But I needed to pause for a moment, and it was great. My son actually was excited about talking about this this morning. We're going to talk about Saul. So I, we talked a little bit about it last night. I didn't give him everything. But um, this is important, though, believer. I know it seems like it's such, ah, that's not the, no, it's not the main point of the text. It's not. But I think it's important that we're accurate when it comes to the text. And it's really dangerous when believers go off of something somebody told them. You know, the, the very famous, where two or three are gathered in my name. A lot of people quote that before a prayer. And it has nothing to do with prayer. That's why context matters, believers. It really does. Let's get back, okay? Number three, just as always, when we encounter Christ, we, need, we realize who he is. God always sends a messenger our way. God always sends a messenger our way. Look at verses 10 through 18, going back to Acts chapter 9. So in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 18, look at what it says. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he may receive his sight. 
Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for, the, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So, what do we find out here? God sends a messenger. God sends a messenger to Saul. What's, what's interesting is that Ananias is a really neat experience here that I think many of us could learn from. There's a lot in the text here that all of us as believers can learn from. You know, now most of us would be like, well, it'd be a little easier to know who to go talk to if we had a vision, right? I can be much easier to do that. Like, Roman, go talk to this person. They're ready to receive the gospel. Would be nice, right? That'd be a really nice way to do that. We don't have that privilege today. But what we do have is we have the Holy Spirit that still works and always sends a messenger to those that need to hear the word. In fact, that's one of the reasons Paul makes a statement in Romans, how shall they hear without a preacher? Guess who the one that, that, that is taught, called to be a preacher? We are. We're to preach the gospel, preach the good tidings of great joy. Ananias here, though, um, really has some responses that I think we can learn from. And many of us probably have had similar responses, right? So the first one is, here I am, Lord. Like, what do you want me to do? I will do anything you want to share your word, right? God, I'm here to do whatever you want for me. Anything you need, I'm available. Why don't you go meet up with Saul, the Pharisee? Uh, he's blind and he needs his sight back, so I need you to go, go take care of that. And then uh, what's the response? Very, very simply. Uh, Lord, I've heard he's very dangerous, right? Um, do you know who he is? Like, he has papers to arrest people like me. Like, why would you want me to go do that? You see, I've heard that Saul's already quite aggressive. In fact, Stephen's death, he was there. He was very much involved. I'm not sure about this, right? Like, that would be... Many of our responses, if God tells us to go tell us, talk to somebody that we probably don't want to talk to. I'm not sure. I mean, you know who that person is. It's a, he's a jerk. I wouldn't want to talk to him. Don't you know how rough they are? I'll tell you, you know what's amazing is a lot of the most hardened people when it comes to the faith, when they come to saving faith, it's the most amazing thing to see how softened they are by Christ. And then they turn into just bold, passionate followers of Jesus. God redirects that, that tension, if you will. So God just tells him, go, he's one of mine, and he will suffer along with you now as well. So what, is, what does Ananias do? He actually goes and finds Saul. And his response is what should be our response. He shares with him. He goes, brother, the same Jesus you now recognize has sent me to help you. I'm here on his behalf. I'm here to talk to you about Christ. 
Saul regains his sight and is baptized. He finally gets some food and he actually regains his strength here. You have to understand something. God will always send a messenger. Always send a messenger when Christ has been encountered and who recognizes who he is. God does not leave his children hanging. He always sends a messenger. When, with Cornelius, he sent Peter. With Saul, he sent Ananias. You see, there are people around you that you don't really even notice, but they're wondering about your faith. And they've been wondering for a long time. And they're still trying to figure out whether or not what you have is real. And you and I, we need to get aligned with Christ and the Holy Spirit and work on our walk with him. And you know what? He's going to send us to who he needs us to go to. He absolutely will. It might not be in a vision, but it may be you're reading in your Bible reading that morning. What a thought. And a verse sticks out. Man, I need to share something with somebody I know. And you have a specific person in mind. You know, it's no accident that God puts certain people in our mind. You see, some of you, you, you can't help it. You think of certain people all the time when it comes to your faith. You're like, man, I really wish I could reach this person. So do you pray for them? If that person keeps coming to your mind, do you talk to them? Believer, it's good to pray the prayer, Lord, send somebody to them. What's harder? Lord, send me. It's easier to go, Lord, uh, Send somebody else from the church to go help them out. It's hard to go, Lord, here I am. Send me. What's our responsibility when it comes to this? It's the same response that Isaiah gave when he came before the presence of God. Here I am, Lord. Send me. I'm not worthy. No believer is worthy. Believers, we have nothing to boast of in our faith. We only have Christ to boast of. We have nothing to boast of ourselves. The encounter, though, becomes a reality when there's change. Look at number four, the change. Verses 19 through 31, this is probably the longest section, but we're going we're gonna to break this down rather quickly. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his, this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwell in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenist, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. 
Then the churches throughout all the Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Saul, or Paul, spends just a few days with the disciples. What does he do? Immediately preaches Christ. Paul didn't sit down for a course in Evangelism 101. Although, you might call it that for a few days. Maybe that's what they went through. Who knows? He spent some time with the disciples and immediately went to preach the gospel. He didn't skip a beat. He encountered Christ, was changed by Christ, he's going to go preach Christ. Saul's sharing of the gospel wasn't easy, though. As I'm sure you've noticed, it's not always easy, right? Number one, people thought that he was manipulative or hypocritical in verse 21. Look at what it says. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? Wait a second. Saul? What is he doing here telling us about Jesus? Wasn't he coming after those that preached Jesus? What is he trying to do here? Paul just got more bold than his preaching until they couldn't really deny that he was the real deal. That's what's great. Look at verse 22. Then Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who, were dwelt, who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Look, I'm not stopping. I really mean this. I believe Jesus is Messiah. I'm not here to be deceitful. This is what I really believe now. Number two. Paul, who threatened other believers, got death threats himself. Or Saul, as the text says. Verses 23 and 24. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. I would venture to say that some of the Jews may very well be his Pharisees that he knew. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Wow. Wait a second. You mean to tell me Saul went on his way to go kill Christians, and a short time later after he encounters Christ, people are trying to kill him? Yep. What the text says. Here's what's even worse, and I think this is even more devastating for new believers. Okay? Number three, other believers questioned his salvation. Look at verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Look, can you blame them? Can you blame the disciples for going, wait a second, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this guy. I'm not sure that Saul is the real deal. Didn't he just have paperwork to arrest us? It's hard for Saul because the very people he should be close to don't want anything to do with him at first. It takes someone like Barnabas to bring him in and explain to everybody, hey, you know what? I'm vouching for him. He's the real deal. 
And uh, I'm sure Barnabas probably knew about the fact that people were plotting to kill Saul. He's a real deal. You know why? Because now they're plotting to kill him. So I highly doubt, I highly doubt he's here to be hypocritical. He's got a target on his back. Believer, you know how you know when a person's genuine and you know how you know when you're genuine is when you have a target on your back for your faith. That should be a big indicator of whether you are truly following Christ or not. If, you like, if, if everybody likes you and everybody is great with everything that you say, then you might want to ask whether your faith is really following Christ or it's just some made-up misconception. You see, a lot of people, they, they twist Scripture. God is love, and they turn it into an abuse of the Word of God. Jesus died for sinners. You and I are sinners. But you and I need Him. And there are not many ways to get there when it comes to heaven. The exclusivity of Christ is what set people apart. Remember, when Saul goes out on his persecution tour, if you will, to go after them, he starts off by going after people of the way. Who do you think that is? Disciples of Christ. The one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to see something that's, that's fascinating here, look at how the church is encouraged by Saul's conversion. He comes in, he's, he's disputing with Hellenist Jews, which would be Greek mentality folks, people that really got infused with the culture and they didn't want, hey, by the way, um, people still do that today. They're, the culture has defined a lot of Christians now. Like it's not the Bible that's the authority for a lot of Christians, it's their philosophy professor by warping it with the Bible is now what they think is fine. As soon as the world tells the church how it needs to run and operate, you don't have the church being pure. And Paul debated these guys. And guess what? They attempted to kill him as well. How do you like that, Saul? You're after Christians, and now guess what? They're after you because you became one. If you want to see the church grow and, and get excited, welcome a new believer to the family of God. Church, if we have new believers in the church, that will get us excited and motivated as a church. In fact, the church gets excited as parents do when they have their first baby. It's a great moment, right? Imagine the joy that filled the church having one of the greatest persecutors of the faith join their ranks. And you know what? Paul wasn't some Peter fisherman. That was a Pharisee. He knew how it works. Paul had a mind, man. He had, he, he had intellect. He had logic. And you know what's amazing? Is God uses his conversion to re-encourage the church I'm sure it's pretty encouraging to know he's not going to pursue you, right? He's now on your team. Have you ever had people like that in your life? I mean, I'm, just as a, as a note, like, have you ever had people that, man, you, you, they're just rough to talk to? Like, they're just hard to talk to because they always have a strong opinion about something? But, man, when there's a debate and they're on your side, you're just thrilled. They're like, get them! Take them out! I'm excited. This guy's going to tear you up, man. You don't even know who you're talking to right now. I've felt the wrath myself. I don't want to talk to this guy. You've met people like that, right? Well, in a sense, Paul was a very smart Pharisee. 
He knew what he was doing. So when he debated people, the disciples could just step back and go, man, he already knows their playbook. He already knows the way they think. He's just going to debate them on their own territory. Perfectly fine. pastor is excited when the people of God want to tell others about God and are willing to do whatever it takes to reach others for Christ. When they have the attitude, here I am, Lord, send me. I want to reach my coworkers. I want to reach my family. I want to reach anybody that comes in contact with me with the gospel. That's more important than this election to me. Yeah, I went there. This election is important. But the souls of men are more important. The fact that people are dying and perishing around us and we're more concerned about politics. Church, we've lost the vision. We've lost the vision. We have rights as citizens. Paul understood his rights. In fact, later on you'll see when he's in prison falsely, he stands up for his rights. So it's not that you don't stand up for your rights. You do. But Paul's priority was the gospel. He said, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. All things. I'm doing it all for the gospel. That includes politics. Why should you be concerned about the Supreme Court? Why should you be concerned about this election? The gospel. That's why you should be concerned. God's going to place difficult people in your life that he wants you to reach. And you need to be willing to go. Let me tell you something. Most will not have the power that Saul had in killing believers legally. But if God calls you to do it, are you going to do it? Or are you going to step back and go, no, that person's too dangerous. I don't like talking to them. I know how vicious they are towards Christians. Do you know what they believe? They don't like us. Well, Paul didn't like Christians either. He despised them. The conversion of the Apostle Paul sparked a revival in the church. So in conclusion, here's a question I have. It's very personal, but you need to think through this. Who do you need to reach? You see, every disciple of Jesus Christ has somebody that God wants them to reach. I believe that with all my heart. Not maybe he wants us to. No, he does. Because a disciple of Jesus Christ is called to make disciples. Every one of us that is a disciple of Jesus Christ can reach somebody with the gospel. Every one of us can. You want to be bold? Share with somebody you've never shared the gospel with. You want to be really bold? Step out on a limb. Share with somebody you've never shared the gospel with before. You know what would shock many of us if we did that? How many of them would possibly come to saving faith? They might be the most vile, disgusting, God-hating individual you and I have ever met. But God calls us to be a bit witness to them. Think of what God can do in our church if we saw new life as a church. Think of what God could do if we saw something to the effect of the conversion of the Apostle Paul, who's also called Saul. Let's pray. Let's pray.